Okay, let's go to Second Chronicles this morning. Second Chronicles. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't know where it is, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then there's a few, and then Second Chronicles. And we're going to be in chapter seven. And we're going to read verses 11 through 22, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses, starting at verse 11 down through the end of the chapter, verse 22. And just so you know what we're reading, this is the occasion when the first temple that Solomon built is finished, and in chapter 6 and 7, they are dedicating it to the Lord and to the worship of the Lord. And in chapter 7, God responds to that prayer, and we read that in this passage. So let's follow along as I read today, starting at verse 11 in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles. The Bible says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer. And have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land." Now mine eyes shall be open, and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and thou shalt observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. But if ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight, and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all the nations. And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore, hath he brought all this evil upon them. Let's take a minute and pray before we look at our message this morning. Our Father, as we look into your word now, we need your help to understand. We need your spirit to guide us into receiving this truth even, to open our minds and hearts. And Lord, we need to obey the things that you teach us in it. So help us to see this as your authoritative word. And I pray that it becomes important to us, not just to spend the time here, but to hear what you have to say to us today, so that it might change the the way we live, it might convict us of sin, that we might return to the right way 
of living our lives for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do your work now in each one of us as your word is spoken. I need your help and strength, and so please fill me with your spirit. Give me strength and wisdom. Give me the words to say. May your truth be boldly proclaimed today so that we might all be edified, might be challenged and built up by your spirit. And we give you this time, we give you ourselves, and we want to give you all the glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, the occasion of this passage is the completion of the temple as Solomon gets it ready. Remember, David wanted to build a temple, his father, and God said, no, you're a man of war. I'm going to have your son do it. And so all of the things were collected by David and Solomon oversaw the building of that first temple in Jerusalem. And here, in chapter 6 and 7, we read about the dedication of that finished temple to God. In chapter 6, you can read about the dedication prayer of Solomon, which was offered in, um, in the ceremony of dedication. And in that prayer of dedication, Solomon asked God for several things. He prays that God's presence would reside in this temple perpetually. And God answers that here. He says, I will be here perpetually. My heart will be here. Secondly, Solomon asked God to keep his promise about preserving the line of David on the throne of Israel. And God, again, answers that here and said, if you will follow me, then I will preserve that line. He also prays that God would hear the prayers of Israel as they are offered, not just in that place, but from his people in a humble heart. And God says, I will hear them. And then Solomon finally says that if Israel falls into sin and God judges them by withholding rain and letting them fall before their enemies, that God would grant them forgiveness if they come back to him in repentance. And verse 14 is God's answer to that. He says, if my people will come back to me, will come humbly in repentance and asking forgiveness, I will restore them. So what we read in this passage is really God's answer to Solomon's prayer for his people. And after Solomon prays that prayer, he offers sacrifices on the altar in worship of God. And God answers that prayer at the beginning of this chapter in verse 7 by sending fire down from heaven and burning up the sacrifices as a sign that he has accepted not just the sacrifice, but the prayer of Solomon of intercession for his people and also this dedication of the place that would be called God's house in Israel. And so here we have God's response is what we read this morning. And as we know from history, unfortunately, it didn't take Israel very long to fall into sin. And they began to worship idols. They forgot the law of God. They did their own thing, and eventually God punished them. But what we may not remember is that the fall of Israel actually started at the top. Here we have Solomon near the beginning of his reign, praying for God's blessing, for God's presence to be with them as the people sought him with their whole heart. And it was Solomon, not long after this, who began to take heathen wives for political alliance. And those heathen wives brought their idols with them to Israel. And to appease those wives, Solomon accepted those idols and eventually began worshiping with them 
those false gods that they brought from other lands. And so the problems began with the leadership right here in Solomon, the very one doing this prayer, the very one who built the temple. He's the one that led or set the example for Israel in falling away from God. And as his leadership strayed from God, so the people did, and God came to Solomon eventually and said, well, because you haven't followed me, I'm going to split the kingdom, and eventually it's going to be lost. And we know after Solomon, the kingdom was split into two sections, the north and the south, and eventually both sections, Israel and Judah, were both conquered by heathen nations, first Assyria and then Babylon. And the people were carted off into exile and slavery. And that's where they stayed for 70 years. And that happened way about 400 years before the time of Daniel. But by the time we get to Daniel, he's in Babylon. And I'm sorry, it happened 70 years before the time of Daniel. And by the time Daniel's 70, he's praying a prayer of intercession for his people. And by the end of Daniel's life, God comes and answers Daniel's prayer of intercession for his people and says, I'm going to bring them back to the land. Daniel represented that repentance, that seeking God's face perpetually, that humility that we read here about in verse 14, that God says, here's the conditions under which I will restore my people. And so Daniel represented that. And although Israel wasn't fully restored, under the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, many of them were able to come back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild the city, begin again worshiping God the way that the law intended, that God intended for them to, to worship in the law. And then they fell into sin again. They abandoned God. So even with the restoration, they never really came back all the way. And in fact, that temple, that what we call the second temple that was rebuilt under Nehemiah and Ezra, never had the presence and blessing of God in it. And that was the temple that Jesus visited while he was alive on the earth. And in that temple, and as he went to that temple, it was Jesus who pointed out the rampant sin and the hypocrisy that defined the spiritual leadership of Israel. Those people who were leading worship in the temple were the ones who were leading the nation into sin again just through their abject hypocrisy. They worshipped and supposedly followed the law of God in the open. But Jesus many times criticized and condemned them because of their sin that was done, not just in secret, but under the guise of their religion. And so we see that the leadership was just corrupt. We saw it in Solomon. We saw it in the Sanhedrin during Jesus' day. In fact, the Sanhedrin was so corrupt that Jesus called them serpents, whitewashed tombs, and children of the devil. And these were the spiritual leaders of the day. And so these were the ones that were supposed to be leading the nation and following the Lord, and yet, just like Solomon, they accomplished just the opposite. So, about 40 years, or not even 40 years after Jesus left the earth, God again let heathen nations, this time Rome, come in. Even though Israel was under Rome during Jesus' lifetime, they were free to worship and conduct their own lives. 
as long as they paid tribute. But by the time we get to 70 A.D., the rebellion against Rome had become so bad, Rome just came in and destroyed all of them, slaughtered thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews, destroyed Jerusalem, leveled the temple that was supposed to be the dwelling place of God. And that's the way it stayed until 1948. Now, we know, if you know history, 1948, Israel was again restored politically as a nation. And they have grown and thrived over the last 60 years or so. But there's one conspicuous absence in Jerusalem today, and that is there is no temple. And so the presence of God is not represented there. And in fact, if you go watch the lives of most of those people that live in Israel today, it's not about God. It's not about worshiping God. Many of them follow the law, but they don't truly worship God because just like those people that were in Jesus' day, they reject the Messiah that they said that they were looking for. And so they're lost. And they have not given up worshiping other gods. In fact, God predicted all of this. In this passage that we read this morning, way back in Second Chronicles, when Israel was going into the land, when, when the, the first temple was being built, in verse 19, God says this, If ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them. He did that. He's allowed them to start coming back today. But he goes on, he says, And this house, the temple, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among the nations. And that's exactly what's happened. God fulfilled his word. There is no temple in Israel. There is no presence of God in Israel today. And because God's presence is there, and because the people have not given up their sin, and because they continue to worship other gods, they may not be idols or heathen gods, but they worship money, they worship status, they worship anything else that they can gain in life, God will not hear their prayer. Now we know from our study in Revelation that during the final seven years of the tribulation, when God begins to pour out his judgment upon the earth, that Jews everywhere will still be looking for the Messiah, and they will be deceived into thinking that Messiah has finally come in the person of the Antichrist. He will offer them peace. He will offer them prosperity and protection, and they will think this is the one we've been waiting for. And yet, just like every other false god, those promises will be false. And in the end, just like every other false god will, the Antichrist will destroy them. And we've studied this in Revelation. Two-thirds of the Jews will be destroyed, annihilated by the Antichrist, and wiped off the face of the earth in judgment at the hand of Satan's agent of death. In Revelation, though, we also read that it... At that time, at the end of that time, one-third of Israel will be saved. They will be sealed by God. They will turn back to God, seeking him earnestly in repentance and humility, confessing their sin and pleading for forgiveness, just like God describes here in Second Chronicles 7.14. They will fulfill 
what God says here are the conditions for the restoration. And God will preserve that one-third and will restore them in the kingdom of Christ in the millennium. And they will have all the blessings that God promised. That's the whole story surrounding this passage. And so with all of that background information, it gives us a better understanding of what we're reading here in Second Chronicles chapter 7. It was talking about Israel. It is talking about Israel and what is to come, not only uh, what has happened, but what will be in their future. And the promise, as, as Revelation 11, I'm sorry, Romans 11 says, and Paul says, all Israel will be saved, and David's throne will be established forever. We know that will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. So this is talking about Israel specifically. So the question then is, all right, if this is all about Israel, if this is Israel's history, really kind of a condensation of it from beginning to end and into the eternal kingdom, how does that apply to us as believers today and in the church? Well, here's the the, the point. Even though God here is addressing Solomon and Israel specifically, the passage communicates a principle to us that is universal. It's important for all of us to, uh, to understand and remember, and it doesn't matter whether we're Jews or Christians, if we are the people of God, this principle applies to us. The principle is this. God wants us, as his people, just like he did Israel, to worship him as God alone. The only God in our lives. He starts the Ten Commandments by saying that. You shall have no other gods before me. He wasn't just talking about idols. He was talking about anything that we would put in prominence or in importance over him. Anything we would elevate in our lives to a priority that exceeds the priority we have in God. And it could be something we trust more than God, like money or security or government. It could be anything we seek more than God, such as entertainment or pleasure or work, for that matter. See, there are a lot of different gods or false gods that people seek today, and Christians do as well. And so when we abandon the the true kind of worship that God wants for us, then, and we start setting other gods before us, then we will experience this judgment. And I think we have seen that happening in our day. As we look around at our world and our nation, we already see evidence of God's judgment being executed upon us. Now, as you look back through our nation's history, many will understand that this nation was founded upon Judeo-Christian values. It wasn't Christian in a sense that it was all Christians who founded it, but it was established on biblical principles. That is very clear in the founding documents. But as this nation has become stronger and more prosperous, just like Israel did, we have strayed farther and farther from that truth and from God. And as we look at this nation and its leadership today, we see not evidence of a foundation of biblical principle, but a foundation of rampant sin, pride, just like Satan was thrown out of heaven In pride, the leadership and the people of this country live in pride. And that pride brings dishonesty, perverted justice, 
an abandonment of the sanctity of life, an abundance of pride and greed, and literally an absolute rejection of God's authority. And you see it around us all the time. And so I believe that we're seeing, as a result, God's hand of judgment in our lives. Now, this message is not about how to save our nation, because I'm referring to the past elections. Many people look to election cycles as, okay, this is our hope. This is the chance we have to turn things around. If we get the right people in, things will get better. But things are not going to get better just because we have another election. And we shouldn't be looking to the secular leaders of our country to make things better for us, as believers especially. The warning that God gives here in 2 Chronicles 7 to Solomon is the same type of warning that he gives to the church in Revelation. And he basically says, if you abandon me, if you worship something other than me, if you live your lives for a purpose other than to accomplish my purpose and give me glory, then you will lose my blessing and you will experience judgment. And so the judgment upon our nation is not just because we have leaders who are ungodly leading us in sin. It's because the people of God in our nation, the church, has abandoned God for the most part and don't live for him. So it's not corrupt politics that's the problem. The problem is corrupt hearts. It's the failure of the church that has led us to where we are today. Because if we had done our job and accomplished the purpose that God had set for us as the body of Christ, literally, are representing Jesus in this earth, fulfilling and continuing his ministry that he began, the world would not look like it does today. The Bible tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There is the power of the church. That's the power that we have from God in us. His word. And yet, not only do we not live his word, but we don't share his word. And so his word is not a priority. God is not a priority. And it's our lack of influence and our lack of testimony in a sinful world, I believe, that is the problem and has brought us, especially in this nation, to where we are today. Because the church has just basically adopted the culture, sought out the same things that the world looks for, used religion to get things for themselves rather than to give God the glory, and no nation, no church can prosper when that's the situation. We're not characterized by a spirit of humility and a, character, a nature of holiness. And therefore, the church has become powerless to bring its message to the world around us. And as the spiritual leaders go, and I'm not just talking about those in Washington, I'm talking about those standing in the pulpits. As spiritual leaders go, so go the people. You want to see why our country is such a mess? Turn on the TV and just watch some religious speaker. For the most part, they teach that religion is all about prosperity. It's about being well and having friends and being rich and having God's blessing. But there's nothing about humility and brokenness before the Lord. And so as I pointed out the, over the past several weeks, one of the clearest demonstrations of the lack of spiritual fullness and spiritual power in the church is our lack of prayer. 
We don't pray like we should. We want his blessing, but the problem is we want God's blessing and we want the world's blessing as well. We try to walk the fence between God and the world so we can go back and forth and serve both and get the blessings from both. We don't want to abandon God, but we don't want to separate from the world because we don't want to give up everything that the world offers. We want that too. And that's the the way that the church has defined the Christian life is you can have the best of everything. And Jesus was very clear about the impossibility of that scenario. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's the root problem. We want both. James chapter 4, verse 4, James says, You adulterers and adulteresses, he's talking to the church, by the way. He says, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So we can't have both. Now, when Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed to the Father. He said, I pray that you would take them out of the world, not remove them physically, but keep them from that influence, is what he prayed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul continues this thought. He says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." That was written to the church, not to Israel. That's a command to the church. And so our problem is that we're too busy seeking our own kingdom rather than to build the kingdom of God. And we're like the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. We have lost our first love. We're like the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. We have a name as a church, but inside we are dead. And like the church at Laodicea that Jesus condemned in Revelation 3, we are lukewarm Christians and he's ready to spew us out of his mouth. And that's the state of the church today. Now, I'm not saying specifically that our church is awful and rotten and there's nothing good in it, okay? I'm saying that as believers, we have the wrong priorities. Now, we don't talk about it, but we live it out every single day. We have let other gods come into our lives, and we're guilty of idolatry just like Israel was. That's the problem in the church, and it's reflected in our nation. And because we're guilty of the same thing that Israel's guilty from, then the solution is the same for us, just as God outlines here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And in verse 14, he says this, If my people... That's us as well. If my people, which are called by my name, 
We are Christians. That means little Christs. Shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is not about restoring America. This is about restoring our fellowship individually and as a church with a living God. And restoring the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our churches to be able to accomplish the work that God wants us to be doing in building his kingdom. And so the remedy is right here in First in Second Chronicles chapter 7. And there's three steps. First of all, he says we must be willing to humble ourselves. That, must, that means we must be able to admit that we are the problem. Now, here's what happens, okay? Too often we are so stuck in our pride that we can't admit that we are the problem. All the issues that arise in our lives, we have to blame on other people. We can't admit to being wrong. It's always somebody else's fault. It's not my lack of spirituality or my straying from God's way. It's somebody else's problem. That's what caused the issue. We can't admit that we're part of the problem. And so we would rather point our fingers at everybody else than accept the responsibility for ourselves and our own sin. That's pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 19 says, Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Humility is a hallmark of a believer. It should be. Jesus started the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the meek. That's humbleness, humility. For they're the ones that shall inherit the earth. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23, Solomon, a man who probably learned this lesson through his life, says, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. So the question is, are we more concerned about God honoring us, or are we more concerned about the honor we can get from man? Israel lost that focus. They were more concerned about their public status. In James 4, James very succinctly says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The reason we don't see the power of God in our churches and in this country is because we are too pride. We are proud. We let pride rule us. And so James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So God says, if you want to be restored, if you want to have that fellowship and that power of the Holy Spirit in you to be able to accomplish the work that God has called us to, the first thing we have to do is be willing to humble ourselves. Admit that we are the problem. Because humility is the first mark of true repentance, and it's the first step in being restored to fellowship and favor with God. And so God says, number one, you need to humble yourselves. Not wait for God to strike you down. Humble yourselves. The second thing we must do is pray and seek his face. Now, there's no way we can pray in pride. If you are living in pride, I'm better than the other person, or like the Pharisee who stood up in the temple that Jesus pointed out and said, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other sinners. You may not pray that way, but do you ever think that way? Boy, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. 
Boy, thank you, God, that I'm not the drunk standing on the corner. I'm so much better than that. That's pride. And that will hinder our prayers. The psalmist says that if we regard or keep sin in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. And so pride probably is the most prevalent sin in our lives that keep us not just from seeing power in our prayers, but seeing God's power in our lives. See, and God says, I want you to humble yourselves and then pray. Pray and seek my face. See, that's what prayer really is. Seeking God's face, diligently seeking the face of God. This is what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks, what we call fervent prayer or the prayer of faith. And it's not prayer in this case, it's not prayer for physical healing or for God to provide things or to protect us. It is prayer of repentance, for God to forgive us from the sin that we are guilty of, not that we might be guilty of, but that we are guilty of. And we come to him confessing that sin in a fervent manner because we want restoration with fellowship with God more than anything else. See, we have to, be, we have to recognize and be willing to confess that we have abandoned God's way and are living our own life our own way. And we all do it. There's nobody who's exempt from that. That's why in 1 John 4, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is given to believers. So there's nobody here, there's nobody in any church that can say, oh, I don't have any sin in my life that needs to be confessed. We all do. Just by making the statement that you don't think you have sin in your life is an exhibition of pride that needs to be confessed before God. And so God says, I want you to humble yourselves and pray and seek my face. This is the prayer of one laid prostrate at the feet of the Father, saying, I know I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore because I've wasted everything that you've blessed me with, but in your mercy just let me be one of your slaves, just like the prodigal son. That's the fervent prayer. That's the seeking God's face that he's looking for in humility. And that's the second step, is to pray and seek his face. The third, God says, is that we must turn from our wicked ways. The word turn is repentance. We must repent. In other words, change the way we think and change the way we live. See, what we really believe will affect the way you really live. When you came in, you believed that these seats would hold you up. And you know, I didn't see anybody checking the legs and checking the firmness of the seat. You came in, you sat down because you believed they would hold you up. If you believe that God can sustain you in your life, then you will live that way. If you believe that he is the creator and almighty God that deserves our worship, then we live that way. But the problem is we really don't believe everything we say we believe. Otherwise, our lives would be different. And so God says, you need to turn. You need to repent from that thinking that I can have the world and I can have God too, that I can define my life and still worship God at the same time. That's the wrong thinking. And he says, turn from this. The word repentance was at the core of Jesus' message as well as of John the Baptist's message and the disciples. 
In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent his disciples out. And it says, And they went out and preached that men should repent. Acts chapter 17 when Paul was at Mars Hill in Athens preaching to the people who worshiped the unknown God. He says, And at the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so repentance is the hallmark, the the beginning point of the Christian life. It's what brings us to salvation in the first place, and it's what keeps us in the state of continuing to rely on God and knowing that we haven't arrived yet, and we still need his help, and we mess up every single day, and therefore we have to come to him to help him, to, to ask him to help our cha- change our thinking, because we aren't there yet. Now, it's not okay, then, to think that we can worship the world for six days of the week and worship God on Sunday. It's not okay that if, to think that if we could only elect the right people in office, then all of our spiritual problems would be done. They'd be solved. It's not okay to think that everyone else is the problem, and if they were just more like me, then everybody, everything would be better. We don't want people to be like us. We want people to be like Christ. We need to be like Christ. And God says, those are the things that we must turn away from. That's the wrong thinking. We can have the world and God too. We can live for ourselves and still please him. My life is okay. It's everybody else that needs to change. And God says, turn from that. But turning away from one thing means we have to turn to another. And the thing that we turn toward is Jesus Christ. In Psalm 80, the psalmist three times in that one psalm prays this prayer, Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. See, it's God who has to change our hearts and our thinking. Ezekiel chapter 14, the prophet says, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Psalm 1 defines the blessed person. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. That's what we must be turned to. Obedience to God. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Give up your own life so that you can live the life God has planned for you. And he says, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The word also is interpreted worship. And be not conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's the change of thinking. We must be willing to let God turn us away from our love for the world so that we might know how to truly seek his face in humility and diligently pray to him and live our lives in obedience to his word. 
Those are the things God wants to change our, our minds about. In Romans 8, 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the goal that God has for us when he saved us. He didn't save you to make your life better. He didn't save you so you could have all the blessings that come with salvation. He saved you to glorify himself in your life. There's this saying that people use, and I I hate it, honestly. God accepts you just as you are. That's not true. God accepts those who are a broken and contrite heart. He saves us as we are, but he changes us to become what we should be after we're saved. And that's where our thinking and living need to be focused, on becoming more like Jesus Christ in our lives, in our worship, in our prayer. Is he truly our one God? Do we live like he is our one God. We're not there. The church does not exhibit that kind of behavior. And it's not until we are willing to do all three of these things that God has prescribed here that we're going to see any change for the better in churches or in our nation or in our own lives. God says, humble yourselves. So God doesn't have to do it for you. Learn to really pray and seek his face in repentance. Because we're sinners. And we still need him. Not just to save us, but to keep us on the right path every day. And he says, and turn from what got us all in this mess in the first place. Turn to him. Now that's not just the remedy for healing a nation. That's the recipe for revival. So here's the question. Do you want revival in your life? Are you willing to lay your life on the altar to Jesus Christ so that he can do what he needs to do to take out what he needs to take out and put in what he needs to put in to make us more like Jesus? That's what we need more than anything else in this world. We need revival in ourselves, in our churches, And when that happens, then we'll start to see it in our nation. In order for the church to be revived back to life, first individual believers need to be revived back to life. And God says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Are you ready for a change? Are you determined to seek God with all your heart? Are you willing to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, no matter what it takes? Are you ready for revival? That's what God's asking. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the challenge from your word. We know we are all guilty of seeking after other gods that we worship and make priorities in our life more than you are. 
And so, Lord, we need to confess our sin to you. And I pray, as Daniel prayed, that on behalf of all of us, me included, that you would help us to humble ourselves, that you would forgive our sin of pride, of seeking our own way, that we would turn away from all that wickedness that got us in this mess in the first place and turn to you so that you can do the work of restoration and healing that needs to be done, so that you can do the work of changing us into the image of Jesus Christ so that our testimony, our lives will be effective in the power they have in bringing people into an understanding of the truth of who you are. Lord, make us ready for revival. And I pray that you would humble us if need be in order to prepare us for that. We want your will to be done. We want you to be glorified. And we know this is the only way it can happen. And so just work in each one of us. And may we be willing to be revived by your spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 485. And I hope you can pray it in sincerity. Revive.